Father in heaven, we're so thankful for your word. And we confess that often it is because of our own insufficiencies that we don't understand. And our own lack of effort that we don't even try sometimes. And so we pray that you, through your spirit, might inspire us otherwise today. And to help us to recognize what we can do to give you glory as we seek your face through your written word. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. So what are we doing this weekend? Last night, we talked about foundational principles. Listed 10 principles that form our foundational presuppositions, assumptions, preconceived notions, opinions, whatnot, before we come to the Word. We need to recognize that we come with a certain amount of baggage. And we need to realize that that stuff creates a filter through which we understand the Bible. And we need to know how to manage those things carefully before we impose our own reading into God's Word. And we concluded, Takuma this morning mentioned, that the bottom line, really, is we just need to read the Word. There's no shortcut. We can listen to seminars, listen to sermons on audio verse, listen to the audio Bible, but we just have to read the Bible. We just have to study for ourselves. There's no substitute for that. So this hour, we're going to be looking at practical considerations. And this, in many ways, is sort of the hub of the message's uh, four-part series this weekend. Because we're going to go through a number of points. Uh, I'm distilling them down into two sets of three things that I believe, if we remember them, it'll give us guidance in all of our study. It's basically all we need to remember, in other words, when we come to study the Bible. And then the next hour, I'm going to be giving a Bible study during the Divine Hour, a Bible study that's on another subject in the Bible, but nevertheless, it applies principles uh, for us to see them in action. And then this afternoon, we're going to go back and take a look at that message, and we're going to break it down, and we're going to look, okay, how did those principles we talked about this hour apply And then we're going to go a little bit further and do some deeper analysis. So, that's what we're doing today. So, practical considerations. Let's start there. I've given this presentation a couple times, and this is version 2.0, which means it's been upgraded. And when I say upgraded, it simply means I've I've thought through this. After going through this a few times, I realized, you know, we could do a better job. I could... I think we could distill this down into the bare, essential, nucleus, simple ideas so that it's the easiest to remember. So do you want to know the three or two sets of three things that we have to remember when we study the Bible? You want a simple framework to remember? That's what we're going to discuss. So what are these two sets of three things? Number one, There are three styles or approaches of Bible study. We're going to discuss that, and that's probably going to be the bulk of our time this morning. And then there are going to be three questions that we need to ask when we approach the text. That's it. So we're going to figure out, okay, which which of the three approaches are we taking in our Bible study? We answer that question. And once we answer that question, then when we actually look at the text... We ask three questions, and after asking those three questions, we 
should have arrived at an understanding of the word. Okay? Three styles, three approaches, followed by three questions. So, what are the three styles and three approaches? Let me, before, actually, before we get there, here's a little, um, here's a little note I need to mention. I'm going to be referencing William Miller a couple of times in this presentation. And there's a reason why. William Miller, the father of the Millerite movement, who, which happens to predate the Advent movement, which is the, where the Seventh-day Adventist church came out of, William Miller studied the Bible for himself and arrived at some very revolutionary understandings of prophecy. And this is what Ellen White has to say about how he studied the Bible. Ellen White says in Review and Herald, November 25, 1884, paragraph 23 and on, She says, those who are engaged in proclaiming the third angel's message are searching the scriptures upon the same plan that Father Miller adopted. Okay? In the little book entitled Views of the Prophecies and Prophetic Chronology, so right there she cites where these rules are found, Father Miller gives the following simple but intelligent and important rules for Bible study and interpretation. And then in the next paragraph, she actually lists a number of the rules, but I strip them out because we're going to be looking at them a little later. And she continues afterwards to say, the above, meaning the previous paragraph, is a portion of these rules. And in our study of the Bible, we shall do well to heed the principles set forth. So what what does Ellen White have to say about William Miller's method of biblical interpretation? Does she give it a thumbs up or thumbs down? Thumbs up. She says it is a good plan. He has some good rules that would, we would all do well to pay attention to. So that's why I took the liberty to quote from some of these rules later on. Okay? I just want to give you a basis because William Miller is not a prophet. He wasn't inspired. But we do have reason to listen to what he has to say. And in addition to that, I, de- I, I contemplated printing out his rules. It was like 13 points and handing them out. But I realize, you know what? Let's just save some trees. I'm posting them on Audioverse, okay? So when you find this message on Audioverse, there'll be an additional PDF that have the, the rules, William Miller's rules of interpretation appended to it. And then you can look through them yourself, okay? So now, three approaches. Having got that disclaimer aside. Three major approaches or styles of Bible study. And I think all Bible study types can be grouped into one of these three styles. There is exegetical Bible study, topical Bible study, and allegorical Bible study. Now, you're like, it is too early for you to be using these big words. Can you, can you speak English, please? Okay. Your wish is granted. Let me put it in other words. What is exegetical study? It simply is a verse-by-verse study, which means exegetical is you are reading the words and getting the meaning out of them. Uh, All of you theology majors probably are tired of hearing this, but exegetical simply means you are reading the manuscript as it was originally written. You are trying to identify the, the author's intent to his original audience. So Paul wrote a letter to the Ephesians You are reading the letter to the Ephesians to understand what Paul was saying to the Ephesians. 
verse by verse. Makes sense, right? And then we move on here to topical Bible study, which, to put it in another words, is just looking at a topic throughout the Bible, throughout the scriptures. So this is also doctrinal study. Another type of study in this class is called biographical study. So say doctrinal, you know, you, you go to the evangelistic series, 21 nights or 28 nights, whatever, and each night you hear a presentation on another doctrine. Those are topical Bible studies. What does the Bible have to say about the Antichrist? You read throughout the Bible what it has to say. What does the Bible have to say about salvation? Salvation as documented throughout the Bible, or the Sabbath, or whatnot. Doctrinal study is a type of topical study. Biographical study is saying, hey, let's, I want to learn about a particular person. What does the Bible have to say about Abraham, or Isaac, or Jesus, John the Baptist? You read through the Bible to understand what it has to say about those things. And I want to pause here and say, oftentimes, topical Bible study is called word study. Have you heard of the term word study? I want to review one point from last night, and that is, how are prophets inspired? Were prophets inspired verbally? Did God call them to dictate exactly the words as he wants them to say it? No. At what level was the prophet inspired? The thoughts, the concepts, the principles, the ideas, right? And so when we look at a study of the Bible, we want to be careful not to place undue emphasis on the words individually and begin to do like a cryptology almost. Like the words, there's a word here, there's a word there, therefore these verses must be equal. It doesn't always work that way. You want to see what the text actually says and are they talking about the same subject matter. Okay, so word study. It's useful, the technique is useful. Taking a concordance and looking at all the words throughout the Bible, that's a good technique but we're looking at the words to understand the topic, not just connecting the dots between the words. So just because the word righteousness happens here and then the word righteousness happens there and those two verses, A must equal B all the time, we need to understand what it actually has to say underneath. All right. And then allegorical Bible study. Allegorical. What, what does the word allegory mean? Anybody... Heard of the term? Allegory is simply like a parable, right? It's a metaphor. It's a word or a description of something that has a symbolic meaning. And so when we look at allegorical Bible study, we're talking about symbols, prophecies, types and anti-types, parables, and things of that sort. So we're looking at symbols. So when Jesus says, you know, I'm going to curse the fig tree. He has a parable about the fig tree. Well, he's not really talking about a fig tree because the fig tree was simply a figure of something else. When we talk about the Lamb of God, we're going to talk about the Lamb of God a little bit more later. It might be a physical lamb, right, that's slain and put on the altar, but there is also lamb that is symbolic. And so we need to understand that there is there are symbolism in the Bible, and that is a valid method of Bible study. However, notice that this is on a continuum, but the arrow only goes one direction. That's because the exegetical or the verse-by-verse method of Bible study is always the foundation. And then from there, you go to topical. 
And from there, you go to allegorical. In other words, the reading is more literal on this side of the continuum, and it becomes more figurative as you come to this side. Does that make sense what I'm trying to say? Because, for example, for example, if I were to look at the Bible, and there is a symbol in the book of Revelation, there is a woman, right? How do I know what the woman represents? What should I do to understand what the woman represents? In order to do this, I need to take a step back, right? And I need to go through the Bible to see what does the rest of the Bible say about this topic of a woman in whatever context we're looking at. A woman dressed in red, a woman in white with a crown of 12 stars, standing on the moon, clothed with the sun, right? So to understand the prophecies, we have to go back to do a topical study through the scripture to identify the symbols. But then... There are lots of women in the Bible. And not all women explain the symbols in Revelation. So how do we know which of the verses have to do with what we're talking about in Revelation? Well, each of those passages, we need to go back and do a literal study. Look at it in context. What was the author actually saying within this discourse, be it an epistle or historical narrative or something else? Does it apply, right? Does that make sense? That's why it's got to go in order. Because if you start here, we can pull symbols out of thin air. I mean, symbols can be anything unless we have some sort of basis for interpreting it. And so it's got to go in this order. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But this is how I think about it, okay? This is how I think about it. Exegetical reading is like a 2D analysis, So you have your manuscript, be it an epistle or the Gospels or some document, and you're reading it from start to finish. It's like X and Y, two-dimensional. And then after you read through a number of passages, you take those passages and you overlay them together, and all of a sudden you've got an X-axis, and now you're studying in three dimensions. So you've got all of your two-dimensional understanding of each passage, And then you stack them together and you see the train of thought through the three-dimensional picture. Maybe I'm too nerdy to think that way, but it helps me to contemplate it this way. That's not inspired, but that's just how I think about it. So let's talk about this some more. So exegetical study, or verse-by-verse study, what does Ellen White have to say? This is found in the book Education, page 189, paragraph 4. It says, in daily study, the verse-by-verse method is often what? Most helpful. Ah, Let the student take one verse and concentrate the mind on ascertaining the thought that God has put into that verse for him and then or her, and then dwell upon the thought until it becomes his own. One passage, thus studied until its significance is clear, is of more value than the perusal of many chapters with no definite purpose in view and no positive instruction gained. So yes, yeah, she says it is better to read a passage and just Seek to understand what that passage says and then apply it rather than just read tons of chapters, read tons of books, and I might even say skipping around with no definite purpose in view. So foundationally, we need to get into the habit of actually reading the Bible as it reads. 
You remember last night we had a number of quotes that says, take the Bible as it reads. Well, how does the Bible read? The Bible is not just a dictionary that you just pick and choose. The Bible is written as a narrative often, or letters, or gospels, where we ought to read it as it was written. All right, we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But here's an example. So what's an example of exegetical study, or verse by verse? I go to the book of Romans, chapter 1 through 8, and I read that passage, and I meditate on that passage to understand what Paul has to say about righteousness by faith. So we're just sticking with a verse. He starts here with his argument. He lays out his points. He makes a conclusion. Exegesis. Exegetical study. But this kind of Bible study, exegetical or verse-by-verse, literal reading, whatever you want to call it, contextual study is another term I've heard. There's a pitfall. There are pitfalls to all of these different methods of Bible study. One of the major pitfalls of doing exegetical study is that it becomes merely a dry historical study like of any other ancient manuscript. So let's say you have an old manuscript from the Middle Ages and you're reading it, you're trying to decipher what it says. A lot of people treat the Bible the same way. It's nothing more than a dry historical document that doesn't have application today, that it doesn't have wider connection to the rest of Scripture. That's a problem because... That's not the ultimate purpose of Scripture. Yes, it is an ancient manuscript. Yes, there is historical study involved. Yes, there are all those things, but it's also more than those things. And so it's important for us to also study using the other methods as well. So topical or doctrinal study. What does William Miller have to say? This is from Miller's Rules of Interpretation. To understand doctrine, bring all the Scriptures together on the subject you wish to know. Then let every word have its proper influence, and if you can form your theory without a contradiction, you cannot be in error. Ellen White corroborates with this. Education, page 190, paragraph 2. The Bible is its own expositor. Scripture is to be compared with Scripture. The student should learn to view the word as a whole and to see the relation of its parts. So let me give you an example here. I guess I have it on the next slide. The doctrine of the Sabbath. The doctrine of the Sabbath is a, is a doctrine. It's a teaching of Scripture. How do we arrive at the understanding of the Sabbath? Well, here are, here are just a few examples. We look at Eden. Okay, What does the Bible say about the Sabbath in the Garden of Eden? Genesis chapter 2. What does the Bible have to say about Jesus and the Sabbath in his life as well as in his death? It gives us some more information. What about the Sabbath in the days of Paul? How did Paul keep the Sabbath? Look at all these verses in the book of Acts. And then Isaiah even tells us in the new earth there's going to be Sabbath. So when you take all of these verses together and you create a cohesive, consistent picture, what you then get is a doctrine of the Sabbath. An exegetical study would be looking at Genesis chapter 2 and actually saying, What is God trying to say, or Moses, the author of Genesis, what is he actually saying in Genesis chapter 2? What does the Sabbath, the Sabbath just happens to be one component of a longer narrative in that chapter. And we have to look at that context in order to say whether that verse legitimately informs us in our our composition of a doctrine. 
So here's the pitfall. What's the pitfall of doctrinal or topical Bible study? Well, the pitfall is that we can easily slip down the slope into proof texting. Well, what's proof texting? I've heard it been said once that a text without its context is a pretext. And when you use it in that way, you are proof texting. Does that make sense? So meaning, I can pull a word out of thin air in a scripture, like last night. We read a verse in Isaiah chapter 30 that talked about towers and towers that fell. So therefore, it must have to do with 9-11. That's called a proof text because I'm misusing the verse. It's going against the original intent of the verse, of the author. It, it has no relation to what the original point was that the author had, um, had intended. And I might say that this right here, this pitfall is one of the largest pitfalls to us as Adventists. You know why? Because when you go to evangelistic meetings, and this is how many of us, a lot of us came into the faith, we go to evangelistic meetings and we assume that proper Bible study simply means stringing a, a series of verses together willy-nilly and making us say whatever we want. And in fact, I will even venture to say that sometimes... I don't want to put anyone on the spot because I've done it myself, okay? Sometimes I go through the verses that are used in our evangelistic meetings and I review them and I actually realize later, wait a minute, uh, that actually wasn't saying what we were trying to make it say. And we need to be careful not to use inappropriate methods in order to accomplish the means that we think God wants us to do. The ends do not justify the means. The word of God is too sacred for us to treat with unsanctified you know, ambition and intentions. All right, so that leads us to the allegorical or typological or symbolic or uh, figurative, metaphorical, prophetic, what have you, method of Bible study. And the great controversy here says, page 598, paragraph 3, the language of the Bible should be explained according to its obvious meaning unless a symbol or figure is employed. So this goes back to confirm what I was saying earlier. You don't start with symbolism. You end with symbolism. Meaning, you do not go to symbols or figures unless, unless the obvious meaning doesn't make sense. So when we read the Bible, remember the hoofbeat principle last night. The most simplest, clearest, most obvious reading is usually the most correct. But if it does not make sense, then we have to say maybe there is a symbol here being used. In fact, that's what Will, William Miller says here in his Rules of Interpretation. How to know when a word is used figuratively. If it makes good sense as it stands and does no violence to the simple laws of nature. <laughs> that's an interesting way of saying use your common sense. That's literally what he's saying. Read something and use your common sense. If it doesn't make sense logically, then probably there's a symbol or figure. He says, then it must be understood literally. If not, figuratively. He says, don't treat this like rocket science. Just take the word as it reads. If it doesn't make sense reading it straight like that, then maybe there's a symbol. He continues, this is all William Miller. To learn the true meaning of figures, trace your figurative word through the Bible 
and where you find it explained, put it on your figure, and if it makes good sense, you need to look no further. If not, look again. So trace your figurative word through the Bible. What kind of method of Bible study is he referring to now? Back in the three styles of Bible study, which one is tracing your word through the Bible? It's a topical Bible study. So he's saying, if you have a symbol that you don't understand, go back and do a topical study. All right? Parables are used as comparisons to illustrate subjects and must be explained in the same way as figures by the subject and the Bible. And it's interesting because, you know, when you look at symbolism, sometimes you don't have to look very far. This is one of the things I like to teach my, tell my students. I taught Daniel Revelation in high school a few years ago. I say, you always start with the book of Daniel. Because if you look at the book of Daniel, it's like algebra. And Revelation is like calculus. You've got to have the foundation. When you look at Daniel, like in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, for example, there are figures. There's a statue, a metal man, there are beasts, there's all these horns and these kind of things. But if you just read the chapter, it explains what the symbols are. It just tells you. The head of gold, or thou art the head of gold, King Nebuchadnezzar, and after you will come another kingdom. Okay. I don't need to guess. It tells me. But when you get to Revelation, it's not so obvious. So once you study in Daniel, you get the hang of how do I actually interpret these things. You get to Revelation and you apply what you learn from Daniel. By the way, a lot of the symbols in Daniel transfer over into Revelation. And so allegorical, typological, symbolic study is is something that we don't want to treat lightly. Meaning, if we haven't done our proper Bible study exegetically, topically, when we get to symbolism, we have to go back and do a lot of groundwork to prepare ourselves to do it properly. Because nobody's going to do calculus unless they've done algebra. It's the same, same thing. Here are some examples. We've already talked about them. The symbols of Daniel and Revelation. Also, the sanctuary typology. The sanctuary, we all understand what the Lamb of God represents. Because we've heard the sermons, we've heard the Bible studies, that is a type of allegorical study. And of course, the parables of Jesus as well. When he's talking about the lost sheep, the lost coin, they represent something. Okay? The wedding garment, those kinds of things. So I want to talk about the pitfalls of this allegorical method of Bible study because it is very easy to get a little out of control. It's easy to spiritualize truth away or stretch the truth beyond what the text says. It can also destroy the objectiveness of biblical truth. It could actually lead us to the return of the Dark Ages. Let me explain. I need to give you a little history here because this actually happened. This actually happened. I shared an example with you last night about an individual who took the law of clean meats and said, that doesn't apply to clean animals. That's just talking about living sacrifices. It's talking about Christians who chew the cud, study the word daily, who are cloven-footed. Right? These are Christians who are actually living up to the light and whatnot. Well, there actually happened to be a period of time before the Middle Ages, when there was unrest in the church. And maybe I need to take a step back. Greek philosophy was making inroads into the Christian movement in the early church history. And Greek 
thinking had this thing called Greek dualism, which meant that there are two realities. There is a spiritual reality which is unseen. It's in your mind. And that's the perfect, ideal world. And then there's the carnal or the physical manifestation, the reality that we live in now, which is, by definition, imperfect. So one illustration of this is that if you are a furniture maker, you're a carpenter and you make furniture, the perfect chair, let's say you're making a chair, the perfect chair exists only in the mind of the creator, in his thinking, in his mental eye, in his imagination. That is the true reality, the spiritual realm. And whatever physical manifestation of that image is always going to be inferior because it's imperfect, it's carnal. You sort of understand how they're thinking about this. And so this kind of thinking came into the church and people started applying that to the Bible. And so they say the Bible has a literal sense, yes, but the literal sense is unimportant. It's the higher, metaphorical, allegorical, symbolic sense that is most important. And what started out as just There's some symbolism in the Bible that we need to interpret. It became everything in the Bible has a secondary or tertiary or four, five, six, seven different interpretations and the physical, the literal reading of the word is the least important. And this is what happened. The church fathers, early church fathers who kept the faith, they started dying off and then this new type of philosophy came in and then before long, The common people would say, oh, I can't understand the Bible anymore. Because how could I possibly know which of the seven interpretations is correct? I better let the professors, the priests, the scholars study the Bible for me. And we sort of have this idea that the Dark Ages, right, the Bibles were chained to the monastery walls. That did happen eventually. But it didn't start that way. It wasn't like all of a sudden one day people said, okay, everyone, give up your Bibles. We're taking them. It wasn't like that. It was a work in the mind. People began to have their faith in Scripture eroded by this kind of, or not this kind of study, but taking this kind of study to, uh, to an extreme where now the common person said, I can't understand the Bible for myself. Someone else got to study for me. Someone else has to interpret it. And so they themselves gave up the Bible. And after that, the Bibles were taken away because nobody was reading them anyway. And then they got locked away in the monasteries. And so the, the great Protestant Reformation, we think, oh, William Miller with his 95 theses, he, 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 he nailed it to the wall. It's like he was attacking the papacy and, and indulgences. And he's, he's doing all of these things, right? Like... He's uh, bringing back justification by faith. That's what we think, but that's actually not the greatest contribution of the Protestant Reformation. The greatest benefit of the Protestant Reformation was reviving a literal reading of the word. Sola Scriptura, by the word alone. And, uh, not Miller, sorry, Martin Luther actually wrote... Or, or translated the Bible into the common language, and he gave it to the people. I dare say that was the greatest contribution of the Protestant Reformation, to give the Bible back to the people and say, look, you can read it for yourself. You can understand it for yourself. You do not need to understand seven or nine or umpteenth 
spiritualized interpretation of the text. Just take the Bible as it reads. And so, yes, we do have symbols in the Bible. There are types, yes, but we don't want to return to the dark ages. And I will say this, we might not have, we might not have the same issue necessarily with overly spiritualized meanings of the text as big of a problem, although perhaps some of us do slip into that extreme. But that same mentality of, oh, I can't understand the Bible for myself. I don't know Greek and Hebrew. Better let the professors work those things out. That kind of thinking is just as dangerous as the period leading up to the Dark Ages. Please, remember, we can study the Bible for ourselves. The Bible was written for the common man, practical purposes. It was intended to give to, give to us God's word in a form that the common person can understand. So don't be fearful. Have faith that the Lord will, tr- uh, will, will t- teach us as we trust in him. And so I added this little thing here, down here, the great red dragon. It's just a cute little illustration. I was, I don't remember where I was. I might have been in China when this happened, but someone was talking to me and they said, you know what the great red dragon is? Well, we know what the great red dragon is because it explains in Revelation chapter 12. It was the old serpent, Satan, the devil, the accuser of the brethren, whatnot. But he said, you know what? The great red dragon must be China because that's what the Chinese people call themselves, their dragon. And so this is, this is just a modern day illustration of what can happen if we do not follow the process of studying the Bible literally and then letting it interpret its symbols for us. All right? So here I also want to give... Uh, actually, we'll, we'll come back to it. We'll come back to it. So let's, let's continue. So when we look at the Bible as a whole, we realize it's composed of 66 books. And not all the books are written in the same method or the same form. And so by reading, knowing the genre of the writing, it helps us identify how best to read it, okay? So like Genesis, Exodus, Esther, Nehemiah, Gospels, Acts, etc., and other books in the Bible, they're historical narratives. In other words, historical stories. Stories that have a plot, have characters, actual events. And I'm, I'm so thankful most of the Bible, a great deal of the Bible are written in story form. Helps us remember. God understands the frailty of the human mind. And then there's the law. The Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the law. And then epistles. The Pauline epistles, general epistles, actually, a lot of the Gospels are actually written as letters, right? We're studying the book of Luke in our lesson study. Written a letter written to Theophilus, right? So epistles are just letters. And then there is poetry. And then wisdom literature. And then the prophecy, major modern prophets, Daniel and Revelation. So, I want to think with you for a minute. Let's just take epistles as an example. Most of the New Testament written in epistle form. Imagine if you got a letter from your sweetheart, my wife, or you got a letter from your boyfriend, girlfriend, mom, dad, grandma, whoever. You got a letter. How would you read it? Just read it. What, what, you're telling me you're not going to open the, the, the letter and say, oh, I can't believe what he said in verse, or chap, uh, paragraph, paragraph three. 
And oh, paragraph 15 is so beautiful. Man, I wonder what he says in paragraph 20. Is there anyone who would have a letter in the mail addressed to him in handwriting from someone you care about? You rip it open and you jump around. Does that make any sense? Pauline epistles were letters. Do you think the the churches, Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, Corinthians, they get this letter from, from Paul and he's like, oh man, let's just number all of these lines and let's just jump around and let's see what we can find out. Would they not actually just sit down and read to my beloved church of Corinthians at Corinth? Grace be unto you and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ, right? He just goes down, da 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 You just read the letter. So why do we treat the Bible sometimes as like a crossword puzzle? We should read the, the word as it's written to us. Here's another example to show how the topical Bible study and the literal reading or exegetical study work together. So using this letter example again, imagine that you are doing like a massive anniversary party for your parents. Let's say they have a 50th anniversary coming up and you as a child with your siblings want to do a very special event to commemorate 50 years of marriage for your parents. And your parents allow you into their archive of their love letters that they wrote to each other all the way back through the years. How would you read those letters? You would read the letters from start to finish. At least that's how they were originally intended. But there is a place for using those historical records, right? to identify certain elements that you want to accomplish for them in this special anniversary party. Let's say, what what was a very special thing that mom loved to do with dad? And you have this record of their courtship and their relationship, and you can read through topically, right, through the letters to identify they did this when they were 25, and then they did it again when they were 35, and then 45... They, let's do this whatever activity that they really enjoy. Does that make sense how we ought to read the Bible? Do not discard the plain reading of the word and just jump straight to, you know, the mix and match topical study. We want to understand the context and then overlay all of the different passages together to understand better what we're trying to accomplish. So, and we can do that with you know, a lot of the various uh, genres of the Bible. Imagine the poetry. A poet intends for you to read the poem in order. A poem is not chop suey, where you can just pick one line out and another. We've got to read it in context and read it together. All right, I think that makes my point. And so let's do a couple of examples, a couple of examples here. So the exegetical Bible study, Genesis chapter 4, 4 and 5, let's actually look there. Uh, I picked this example because uh, Pastor Kurt actually did uh, did this sermon last week. So hopefully we still remember. Genesis chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. So the exegetical study, we would take a look at this passage. And uh, it says this, And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof, And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. 
But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect, and Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. So here, if we were doing an exegetical study, we would simply focus in on this story. Abel brought a lamb, the firstlings of his flock. He was a keeper of the sheep. Cain did not. He brought the fruit of the ground. And then this is the sermon that Kurt preached last week. Why did God obey, or why did God accept Abel's offering and not Cain's? They were both took effort, right? And then we answer the question by looking previously. God had sacrificed animals to make skins for them. And then the animal represented the obedience of Abel. Abel obeyed. Cain did not. So this is exegetical study. You're just looking at that passage, okay? And there's a lot more that we can study, but that's just an example. If we move to a topical study, we'll say, okay, there was a sacrificial lamb in Genesis. Genesis chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. What else does the Bible have to say about the lamb? In Exodus, we have the Passover lamb. And then you read the story about the Passover. And then lambs in the sanctuary service throughout the Old Testament. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then in, in, in Matthew and John, rather, John chapter 1, John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So you're tracing this topic through the Bible to find what the Bible has to teach about the doctrine of the Lamb of God. And then allegorical, then, we go to Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. Let's go there. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6. Revelation 5, verse 6, And it says, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven heads, uh, sorry, seven horns, and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So here we see there's a lamb that's standing. The lamb is standing, but it looks as though it had been slain. So how does a lamb stand if it's been slain? Okay, that's question number one. Having seven horns. Seven horns. And seven eyes. Seven eyes. This is a lamb, but the lamb has seven horns, seven eyes, and it looks like it's been slain, but it's standing up. Going back to what William Miller said, does this do violence to the simple laws of nature? Have you ever seen a lamb? Like this? It must be a GMO of some sort, right? (laughs) But the simple laws of nature. So clearly, Revelation chapter 5, this lamb, it's got to be symbolic. It must be symbolic. So how do we know what it represents? Well, guess what? Fortunately, we have just done a topical study on the Lamb of God throughout the Bible. And so when we go to Revelation chapter 5 or 6, we can say, oh yes, I remember what the Bible has to say about the Lamb of God. And the lamb that was slain. And then, of course, you have to do further topical study. What do horns represent? What do eyes represent? What's the significance of seven? Right? That's how you do your symbolic Bible study. There's just one example. Here's another example. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. This is a little bit of groundwork because this will... uh, We're coming back to Hebrews in the next two sessions. But Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 through 19. This is actually one of my most favorite passages in Scripture. It is, it's really powerful. Hebrews 11, verse 17 says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. 
accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence he also received him in a figure. So if we are doing a literal verse-by-verse exegetical study of this passage, we would look at the rest of the book of Hebrews, the rest of the chapter 11 of Hebrews, and what is chapter 11 of Hebrews about? It's about faith, right? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, that's verse 1. And then we continue on recounting the faithful heroes throughout Scripture. So exegetically, Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19 is simply an exposition on Abraham's faith, his test, within the context of Paul's discourse on faith. And so this is one piece of the argument. He says, what is faith? Let me illustrate. And one of the illustrations is Abraham, by faith, offered up Isaac, his only begotten son. And then you can really break this down, and you can read through the verse. And one of the most amazing things is that this is a passage in Bible which explains the thinking process of Abraham as he was sacrificing Isaac. Because God said Isaac is the promised son, but then God said you've got to kill Isaac. So if you kill Isaac, how is Isaac going to be the promised son? Because he's dead. You see, the, you see the dilemma for Abraham. But you know what Abraham says in verse 19? He simply accounted that God is able to raise him up from the dead. And by the way, previous to this, there is no record of any human resurrections. So Abraham, by faith, oh man, now I understand what faith is all about. When God seems to contradict himself, we just assume God is powerful enough to do the impossible to make his word come true. Amen? Guess what? That's just, in a nutshell, exegetical study of Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. But if we do a topical study, then we say we take this passage and it becomes just a component of a wider study, let's say, on the topic of faith. Right? So Abraham demonstrated faith. And then the Roman centurion demonstrated faith. The Syrophoenician woman demonstrated faith. And the disciples, Jesus says, oh, ye of little faith. Right? You take all of these topics on faith. And you can string them together to create a doctrine. Okay, what about obedience? This is also a component to a study on obedience. Right? We can look at what obedience has, uh, what the Bible has to teach about obedience throughout the Bible. What about the importance of God's word? This is another component that we can include in that study. And then we can do a biographical study on the life of Abraham and the life of Isaac. I want to understand what I can learn from the story, the life of Abraham or Isaac. This chapter most certainly is going to play a part in that study. These are all topical studies. And of course, the great controversy as a whole. Why did God have to permit this to happen? Why did God have to put Abraham through a test? Why did he have to ask Abraham to offer up a human sacrifice when that's what all the pagans were doing? Hmm, that's another interesting point to study. And then allegorical study, we see here that God, this is a symbol of God giving his only begotten son. The Abraham-Isaac sacrifice story is an illustration because now we can relate, particularly for those who are parents, can relate to the heart of a father who has to sacrifice his only son. We have a better glimpse at the character of God. It also illustrates how Christ took Isaac's place as a ram caught in the thicket. The the ram was there. Isaac was spared. Jesus takes our place, right? That's the symbol. And of course, if you look in uh, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 155, this 
allegorical understanding or this metaphorical illustration, figurative understanding, is also confirmed. Ellen White actually uses that. And so these are some examples of the three different styles or methods of Bible study. All right. So now we're moving on to the second set of three things. The second set of three things. Here are the three basic questions that we need to ask when we study the Bible. And I would dare say these are the only three questions. Because these questions will inform us what other questions to ask. These are the ones we have to remember. Okay? This is, um, corresponds, it corresponds with the three steps of Bible study. And I will mention that this particularly applies to exegetical study or the literal study of the word. Because once you get that down, topical study, allegorical study, it should come more easily. So first is, whoops, sorry. Let me go back. The first question is, what does this passage say? What does it say? And this is what I call observation. We just want to go to the text, and we want to say, what are the facts? What is actually stated? What is said? What is not said? How is it said? To whom was it said? What does it say? Okay? We're not trying to understand the meaning yet. It's just saying, what are the hard, what's the hard data that I can work with? Observation. Second step. Then once you find out what it says, it will automatically generate questions. It will create a framework. It will create a mental image. And then you ask yourself, what does this passage mean? Now that I know what it says, what does it mean? And there are questions to ask for that. And after we figure out what the passage means, then we apply, which is, what does this passage mean to me? What does it mean to us? What does it mean to you? Right? A personal application? A collective application? It might be for our family. What does it mean to my family? What does it mean to our church, the local church? What does it mean to us, our worldwide church? What does it mean to us, the human race? Right? There are many levels of application. And which of these three steps do you suppose is the most, well, I wouldn't say most important, most requires the most effort? Let's put it that way. Which one? Application? Who says application? Okay, who says interpretation? Who says observation? (laughs) Who uh, is too scared to vote? Observation is most, is most important. Here's the reason why. Because this is the foundation. If we don't observe, if we don't really get what's going on, we're going to have a wrong interpretation. And if we have the wrong interpretation, it doesn't matter what our application is. We're applying the wrong thing. Let me give you an example. Suppose I give you, I have a piece of metal up here. I'm just holding this piece of metal. Right? You don't know what it is. In order for you to determine the proper use or the application of this piece of metal, what must you do? You've got to figure out what it is, right? That's interpretation. But in order for you to figure out what it is, you've got to observe the facts about it. Is it heavy? Is it light? Does it rust? Is it sharp? Is it... What color is it, right? And so you observe it, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, this is a nail, 
you just interpret it, right? And then once you figure out what the nail is, then you can apply. Are you going to brush your teeth with this thing? Comb your hair? Floss? No. Because now you know what it is. Same principle when you're studying the Bible. You want to observe what the text is saying, gather the facts. What does it mean? And generally when we say what does it mean, it's what was the original meaning intended by the author. Meaning if if Paul was writing to the Corinthians about sexual immorality in the church, we have to say what is he talking about within the context? What is he actually saying to the church in Corinthians? And then we say, okay, given what counsel he gave to this particular situation in the church at Corinth, how does that apply to us in the 21st century in America and Tennessee, College Dale, whatnot? Okay? And generally speaking, and I say generally with a grain of salt, there's one interpretation. Generally. But that one interpretation can lead to multiple applications. Because it might be just a nail. If it's a nail, can it be anything else but a nail? Will it be also a screw? Will it be a toothbrush? Will it be a kite? It's a nail, right? But the nail have many applications. You can build a house. You can put, up, put on a roof. You can build a toy, build a train. You can use the nail for many things. So usually there's one, ap- one interpretation, the primary interpretation. Okay. So we, what I will also say is that if we spend the time, if we spend the time to get our observation right, if we spend the time to get our observation right, the interpretation and the application generally flows quite easily. If you just spend the time to gather as many facts as you can, the interpretation, it'll be like, oh yeah, of course. Not always, but often. And then once you get the facts down, the application is actually the fun part. That's when you sit back and say, Lord, now what? Now, how do I, how does this affect me? What ought I to do now? The application. So let's go quickly. This afternoon, we're actually going to go through a passage and go through these steps. Observe, interpret, apply. But Let me just throw a bunch of things at you. I'm running out of time, so I'm going to go a little bit quick here. Uh, And I wish I could give you a lot more illustration, but uh, we'll see how we we go. So observation, here are some of the ways to help us gather the facts. What does this say? What does this passage say? Here are some of the questions that we can ask. So what's the genre, right? Is this a letter? Is this a wisdom literature? Is this a poem? Is this uh, a law that was written? It informs us what is being written. Who is the author writing to? And by the way, we better ask the question who the author is, right? Who the author is? Who is he writing to? Who is the audience? And of course, we'll talk about the historical context, like what led to him writing it, if we can figure out that kind of information. And this is very important. Read it multiple times. When I was a Bible teacher, uh, teaching Daniel Revelation, before the first day of class, I tell my students, read the book of Daniel seven times before you get to class. Read it forward, read it backwards, read it in different versions, read it fast, read it slow, read it out loud, read it silently, read it in the morning, read it at night. Read it seven times. And the reason for that is that it gives us that mental picture. Because what you want is to have the big picture in your mind so when you're reading the details, it's within that context. Okay? 
And I think this next one is very fascinating. If you can read in a different language, especially if you can read Greek and Hebrew, more power to you. But even if it's other languages, Korean, Spanish, Chinese, Japanese, whatever, read it in different versions or languages because sometimes different language and a different version, it brings out different things. In fact, in the sermon this morning, it's going to, going to illustrate that. Two different versions of the Bible actually helps illuminate the concepts. Uh, very helpful. I'll give you another example. I actually can't read Chinese very well, but enough to be dangerous. You know in John chapter 1, verse 1, right? What does it say? How does John chapter 1, verse 1 begin? In the beginning was the Word. Okay, what does Genesis 1, 1 say? In the beginning, God, right, created the heavens and the earth. In the English language, they say the same thing. In the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, in the beginning, God. In the Chinese Bible, they're different words. In the beginning, in Genesis, is in the beginning. It's just at the beginning. In John 1.1, 1, 1, it actually says, before the beginning was the word. Oh. <laughs> That's fascinating, right? Because in John 1, later on, it actually says, by him was all things made that were made. So just reading it in a different language sometimes can just give you that extra insight as you're gathering the data in your observation. Next one, read widely. It's helpful to have a big picture in your mind across multiple chapters, books, times, periods. That's also why I say read the book multiple times. Okay, so you want to read widely. If you're studying a certain passage, say John chapter 3, you want to read chapters 1 and 2 and 3 and then 4, 5, and 6 to study chapter 3. You want to look wide, you want to look narrow, big concepts and the details. So we want to not lose the forest for the trees. There are details. Certain concepts might hinge on a certain turn of phrase. Jesus says, da 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 but, oh, there's a contrast now, right? Or da 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 therefore. So he's concluding now. So we want to remember those things, but we want to also take a step back and realize, wait a minute. He's dealing with this overarching concept in these three chapters, and now this fits in. Or he's talking to the Jewish leaders. Now he's talking to the disciples. He's talking to the masses. He's talking to the Gentiles. All of these big concepts, you want to remember the forest while you're investigating the trees. Okay? And again, that's why you want to read it multiple times. You want to outline the chapter or the book that you are studying. And this sounds scary, because like, oh, what if I get it wrong? Well, this is for your personal study. You're not trying to become, you know, create a new commentary of the Bible or something. Just do something that will help you get the framework of what is being said in your mind, okay? And then you want to stop at each word and each phrase. Now, you don't want to do this too much, but the idea is you want to stop and you want to ask questions. And that's what we're talking about here. You stop at each word and each phrase so that you can notice the tenses he used the past tense here. And then in the very next breath, he's talking about the future tense. Why did he do that? Expressions. He says, verily, verily, I say unto you. Every time he says that, something happens. Every time he says, follow me, something happens. Right? Expressions. Numbers. Right? We talked about seven horns, seven eyes. What's the significance of the number seven? And then the pronouns. Here he says, he. And then here he says, we. Those kinds of con contrasts can make a big difference. And then you ask the basic questions. Who, what, when, where, why, how. 
Now, this is a big one because it depends on the verse. Who is he talking to? Why did he say that? How was this communicated? Was he standing on a mountaintop shouting it? Was he sitting in the fisherman's boat? Was he on the mountainside? Was it one-on-one at night? How? When? Right? Same thing. Was it at night? Light of day? Was it on Sabbath? Was it not? Where did it happen? Why did it happen? All of these kinds of questions. Okay? And then notice what's stated and what's not stated. Ask yourself, what does it say and what does it not say? So even last night, the key verse for this weekend, 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It says rightly dividing, therefore, there also must be a wrongly dividing. Right? That's what we're talking about. What does it say? What does it not say? Okay. Here's a really good one. And for our personal devotional reading, particularly if you are like me and you're a little groggy in the morning and you're sort of like just trying to wake up and you want to study the Bible, but you're not able to really hit it with full gusto, uh, this is a very useful technique. And I want to pause here to, to really talk about this because I think you'll, you'll find this helpful. As you're reading through the stories, which the Bible are, is full of stories, imagine yourself, put yourself in the story as each character. Okay, so imagine you were there when the woman caught in adultery was thrown at Jesus' feet. Imagine yourself in that story. Imagine if you were the woman. Just like in your sanctified imagination, zoom into her and just think, how must you feel? What are you wearing or not wearing? Who are you just with? What must you be thinking when you hear the Jewish leaders say, Moses says that we have to stone this woman. What do you say, Jesus, we should do? What would you be feeling? And then when Jesus stoops down to write in the sand, how would you feel then? And then when Jesus looks down and says, woman, where are thine accusers? How would you feel then? You understand how this process works. And then you flip the script and you say, okay, imagine if I were in the Jewish leader's shoes. Why am I saying these things to Jesus? What would I feel, how would I feel if Jesus started writing my sins in the sand? What would be my reaction? Right? And then, I don't mean this to be sacrilegious, but just for personal devotion, imagine yourself in Jesus' position. Right? If you were in a position where people were putting you between a rock and a hard place to try to trap you in your words, would you react the same way? Let me just give you one example. One of the most powerful insights I gained from that story was doing just that. I was imagining myself in Jesus' shoes, and I now have an opportunity to actually be in a position of power over someone else. But my decision, you know, or, or, and there are people like watching on. And I realized something very interesting is that Jesus, the way that he conducted himself in that instance, he was not just trying to save the woman, which is how we usually interpret the story. But do you realize that Jesus could have stood there and just pointed his fingers at each and every one of those Jewish leaders and just told them to their face, in public, in front of everyone, their sins? He could have done that. But he didn't. He wrote it in the sand. And we are told in the spirit of prophecy that the Holy Spirit convicted the minds of the Jewish leaders and one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, they left. But 
Jesus preserved their dignity. Because guess what? If you publicly humiliate that person, what are the likelihood of that person coming back to repent to you later? But if you show mercy in preserving their dignity, but yet not compromising on sin, that's what Jesus teaches us. Isn't that powerful? It's not just the truth of the story that Jesus can forgive, but how does he do it? Jesus, amazing. So this is how you can do it. Imagine yourself in the story as each character. Personal Bible study, personal devotional study, powerful. You ever wonder, how can I possibly spend more than 10 minutes reading the Bible? Well, you do this a few times and you'll be like, man, I'm only down to like the the third of the 12 disciples in this story. How am I going to finish in time before school starts or something? All right, so continuing. We want to get the historical context of the situation whenever possible. We'll talk about context in just a minute. We want to resist the urge to jump to conclusions. We want to paraphrase the passage in your own words. And then we want to be mindful of context. All of these things are important. So two types of context. Because context, I talk about it a lot. We might as well throw this out there. Literary context, the words, the context within the text itself. And then the cultural or historical context, the circumstances, the the culture, history uh, of, of the surrounding event. So how do you get the context? This is the concentric circles of context. You want to start with the verses that are immediately surrounding the verse you're looking at, and then you move out to the surrounding chapters. Okay? After you move out to the surrounding chapters, you go to the related books. Now, related books may or may not be the books right next to that one. Like if it's the Gospels, yes, they're all related. But let's say it's the book of Acts. The related books might be Ephesians, which is down a ways, because Paul was in Ephesians or Ephesus. Might be the book of Philippians. You're reading Philippians, and you go back and you look at the story of what happened to Paul and Philippi, and you realize, oh, wait a minute, he converted the Philippian jailer. So when he's writing the book to the Philippians, the jailer was probably in the audience listening to what Paul wrote. And so when he says, rejoice evermore, in all, in all circumstances rejoice, all of a sudden it gives a new context because the Philippian jailer remembered that Paul was praying and singing hymns at midnight with his feet in stocks and his back lacerated. Context, okay? Historical context. And then also the context of the rest of the Bible. And after that, you'd look at the spirit of prophecy and then other writings, other books. And here I just summarize it, nearby verses. We don't have time, but Isaiah 28, 9 and 10 is a common verse. We read verse 10, but verse 9 actually interprets what that verse means. Nearby chapters, Daniel 8 and 9. In Daniel chapter 9, we see 70 weeks are cut off for thy people. Well, 70 weeks cut off from what? You go back to Daniel chapter 8. Tells us it was 2,300 days. 70 weeks are cut off of that. And then the related books. Related books can be related by genre or by author or by history. So the book of Acts, the book of Philippians, related through history. Pauline epistles, Corinthians, obviously 1st and 2nd Corinthians, but also Ephesians, Colossians, Romans, whatnot, related by author. Jeremiah, Lamentations, related by author. Daniel, Revelation, related by genre. And then the book of John and the book of Revelation. Very interesting, related by the author. The book of John actually was written after the book of Revelation was written by John on Patmos. He tells the Revelation, he says, wait a minute, I need to write another gospel to fill in some of the holes about this Jesus that I'm trying to uh, write a revelation about. Interesting context. And then other books of the Bible, Spirit of Prophecy, and then non-inspired sources like commentaries, dictionaries, historical books, and so forth. 
And so we're winding down here. So the interpretation. What we're trying to figure out, the big question is, what was author trying to communicate to his or her audience? What does it mean? All right? So we take the facts that are gleaned from observation and we synthesize them together. If this, then this, then this, then this, what does that mean? We seek to answer questions that arise from observation. We, want, we don't want to roam beyond the facts that are observed. We don't want to jump to application too quickly. And also, this is where the principles of interpretation by William Miller is very, very helpful. And no scriptures of any private interpretation. This is 2 Peter 1. So if in doubt, submit to brethren of experience. So if you end up with an interpretation where it's like, whoa, this is really far out there, don't just think, oh, this must be true. There is a place for the church, a community of believers. Go seek a brother of experience, a pastor or an elder or someone who has studied the Bible before and say, hey, this is what I came up with. What do you think? It's called humility. Very important ingredient in our Christian experience. And then when we come to application, we want to look for universal principles to apply not some random detail, right? It's not like, oh, okay, well, since I read that, uh, Lydda was a maker of purple, I must wear purple to church today, right? That's, that's not, that's a random detail, finding application for yourself in devotional study will be different than for others again this is why i'm saying where application there can be multiple applications but based on the same interpretation application can vary depending on your current experience this is the beauty of bible study when you're in college you're going to read the certain bible stories and you're like wow that is exactly what i need and then later on when you're married with kids whatnot you come back you read that same passage and you're like whoa it has a new application that I never thought of before, right? This is what it means the Bible is a living, the living word. And remember that the Bible teaches not only the doctrinal information, but also the manner in which we portray and present them. So that, just like what I explained about Jesus, you know, preserving the dignity of the Jewish leaders when they were accusing the woman. So the summary today, just two sets of three things, three styles of Bible study, exegetical study, topical study, allegorical study. And then the only three questions we need to ask, what does it say? What does it mean? And what does it mean to me? So this afternoon, we will be coming back to these things to better understand how we can apply them to ourselves. So let's pray as we conclude now. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us your word that is sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, may we be faithful in our interpretation. May we not seek to place our own desires into your word, but to look for what you have to say to us. May we be disciplined in our mind. May we be humble. May we have faith. And may we obey that which you reveal. So be with us the remainder of this Sabbath and guide the proceeding uh, meetings in the next hour as well as this afternoon. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.